Hello, everyone, and welcome to EHS on Tap. I'm your host, Justin Scase, Senior Editor of the EHS Daily Advisor. This week is the EHS Daily Advisor's Safety Standdown Week, and you can't build a better safety program without paying close attention to your organizational safety culture. So for today's EHS on Tap podcast, we're chatting with a safety culture and behavioral safety expert who has some best practices to help environment health and safety managers boost their organizational cultural efforts and build safer working environments for all employees company-wide. Joining us on the show is Steve Roberts, PhD, the co-founder and senior partner at Safety Performance Solutions. For the past 30 years, Steve's areas of expertise include the implementation and evaluation of behavior and people-based safety processes, the assessment of organizational culture, management systems design, organizational leadership development, and reducing human error in the workplace. So Steve, welcome, and thank you for joining us on EHS on Tap for our Safety Standdown Week. Great. It's great to be here, and thank you for having me. Absolutely. Like just to, to start things off, uh, I mentioned just a couple of things in the introduction, but uh, could you tell us a, a little bit more about yourself and your career in safety? Uh, yes, I started my interest in safety uh, really as I was putting myself through college as a carpenter and as a painter, a concrete form setter, and a variety of other construction jobs. And um, really, after a few incidents uh, at those jobs, <laughs> I developed more and more of an interest in uh, in safety uh, for example a co-worker shot me with a nail gun one time uh, working at heights with no fall protection uh, a co-worker dropped a hammer on me from from scaffolding two stories above hitting me in the head with a hammer which uh, may be the result of some of my issues now um <laughs> not having enough ladders and being told just to build my own. But after two weeks of using the ladder that I built, it started to fall apart and sort of, so I was not a great carpenter as evidenced by my ladder falling apart, but it gave me a strong interest in safety, which I carried on through uh, when I was in grad school. And actually part of my PhD dissertation was to develop um, our, or at least a precursor to our current safety culture survey that we currently use in our consulting business. Um, back in 1991, I was actually working part-time with the Center for Applied Behavior Systems out of the psychology department at Virginia Tech, as well as half-time uh, out of the Center for Organizational Performance Improvement from the, in the uh, Industrial Engineering Department at Virginia Tech. And there were a group of people in each of those departments, and we found that we worked well together. So uh, back in 1991, we started working together. After a few years, back in 1995, we decided to all leave the university, uh, except for one of our partners, Scott Geller. He was a full professor at the time, and you're allowed to be a full professor and continue with your university work, but the rest of us um, quit the uh, university work. We formed Safety Performance Solutions in 1995, and we have been working with organizations uh, in, in this capacity ever, ever since. That's amazing. So uh, you're here with us during the EHS Daily Advisors Safety Stand Down Week 2021. Um, so as our listeners are taking a pause here to consider safety, what are the top cultural um, and or behavioral safety factors that they should be keeping in mind? 
Uh, I would say to make sure we begin with some form of an assessment. Instead of just beginning with what you think might be an issue, formalize that in, in, in at least some type of way. Sort of figure out what's working, what's not working. Um, we often do this with our safety culture surveys, small group interviews, systems assessments, leadership behavior assessments. However, other ways of doing this, I guess maybe a more focused way of doing an assessment are important as well. Uh, for example, years ago, working offshore on uh, an oil rig, we knew that it was the training was pretty bad because it was a hard time keeping employees. We knew there was a lot of turnover and the training was just not really up to par, but we wanted to see how bad it was. And so instead of asking people, for example, do you know this? Do you know this? In fact, th that was actually how you got a job at the time. Um, <laughs> there was a little questionnaire and it said, do you know this? Do you know this? Do you know this? Do you know this? And you marked yes, 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 yes. And if you marked yes to all of those questions, you were on the next ship out to the rig. So again, we knew the training was pretty bad, but we mm -hmm. wanted to figure out how bad it was. And so we took a different approach. We call it a show me approach to training evaluation. So instead of asking employees if they know certain things uh, and then responding yes or no, we asked them, for example, take me to the closest fire extinguisher or ask them to explain what it means if a certain red light flashes. Um, one of the more interesting behaviors was related to the lifeboat. So this oil rig was 100 miles off the coast of New Orleans in the middle of the Gulf of Mexico. And um, one of the things that at least I would wanted to know and would assume others would want to know is where the lifeboat was and how to get it in the water. Now, one of the base sort of questions based on the, the, the little bit of training that uh, the employees got, one of the questions was, do you know where the lifeboat is and do you know how to get it in the water? And everybody answered yes to those questions. But when we went out to this, uh, you know, using this show me approach, uh, it took us five employees. We had to ask five people before somebody could take us to the lifeboat. And we had to actually ask 10 people before somebody could get it into the water. Now, <laughs> when, when thinking about a lifeboat, it, it wasn't like a traditional looking dinghy type boat. It looked more like a space capsule. So unless you really knew what it was, you, you really uh, sort of really had to have a little bit of training to really understand what it was and how to get it into the water. But really that demonstrates that difference between uh, sort of uh, traditional training assessments and that show me approach. So I, I think that's one of the issues. In addition, some additional factors to consider is one of the biggest misperceptions related to behavior-based safety is that behavior-based safety and a focus on behavior really equates to a blame the worker approach. Um, but really, identification of the behavior of certain risky behaviors should just be the first step. We really need to get employees who are doing the job to help us analyze why certain at-risk behaviors are occurring, get the employees on the job um, uh, involved in developing the interventions to improve those behaviors. Um, so also just changing behavior itself also is not good enough. So we were doing it risky and now we're doing it safe. Well, we need to consider 
how we went about doing that. Do the methods that we use to bring about that behavior change, does it build people's person factors or does it damage certain person factors? For example, um, do the interventions that we use help build self-esteem and group belong and personal control? And if whatever we do to try to bring about those uh, behaviors does not encourage, is not done in an actively caring way, then we may have actually done more harm to safety than good. Even if we end up um, sort of improving the behavior, we need to make sure that those person factors is done in, in a way that uh, will, will lead to some long-term benefit, uh, long-term building of those person factors instead of sort of just pounding away at people trying to get them to change their behavior. Excellent. Excellent. Um, so one other thing that I've I've heard a great deal about is, you know, communication is a big part of building a strong safety culture. So um, what are some communication best practices that EHS managers can employ in their cultural messaging? And also maybe what are some missteps to avoid when it comes to communication? Okay, regarding communication, there are a number of different types and levels of communication. For example, there's interpersonal communication, things like active listening, allowing speakers to finish and maintaining eye contact and asking open-ended questions. You know, there's nonverbal types of communications, facial expressions and eye contact and vocal tone, hand signals with frames and, and that kind of thing. Um, there's one thing that we really recommend with regard to uh, uh, communication, things like skip level meetings. Um, very often it's tough for leaders in an organization to really know what's going on in the organization, what, what, what's happening around them at the employee level. And sometimes there's not a, uh, a lot of motivation for middle level managers to share certain information. And so mm -hmm. skip level meetings where hourly employees uh, regularly meet with you know their boss's boss's boss uh, for lunch or for meetings and uh, sharing sessions that kind of thing uh, to really just ensure opportunities for hearing and for listening feeling heard uh, ensuring everybody feels valued by senior leadership and, and sort of has their viewpoint expressed so that's sort of at the interpersonal level but there's also um, sort of organizational level listening as well. And that's where I mentioned before things like safety culture surveys and uh, management systems assessments and leadership behavior assessments, trying to figure out sort of as a group, what are we doing? And I think one interesting uh, finding that uh, I I've sort of gleaned from doing lots of these listening sessions um, with employees, one of the questions is what do we want from leaders to show that they care about safety? And from sort of hundreds of interviews and, and discussion sessions and that kind of thing, I sort of summarized it in terms of uh, sort of um, major categories that we've summarized it into. And so let me talk about some of these uh, categories. So mm -hmm. what do employees want from leaders to show they care? First is just to show up. For example, visit site locations in person. Don't only rely on reports from others. Understand that others may have a motivation to keep some information from you. So again, first step is to just show up in person in order to see for yourself what's going on. Mm -hmm. um, the next major category I call 
get your hands dirty. What I mean by that is get out of the meeting rooms. Don't just show up to the meeting room. Get out of those meeting rooms into the production, operation, construction field areas. See firsthand the conditions and equipment and procedures employees much, must, uh, must use. Uh, the third would be to bring your checkbook. And so <laughs> I don't just mean throwing money at the problem. What I mean by bringing the checkbook is to make sure that we are doing proper assessments. And based on those assessments, we are providing the needed tools and equipment, personnel, and other resources to not only allow, but to encourage jobs to be performed safely. We need really, we, excuse me, we really need to ask ourselves, do we see safety as a valuable outcome to invest in or simply a cost to control? And um, uh, so what I mean by bringing a checkbook is making sure we're investing properly in safety and not just seeing it as a cost to control. And then finally, what do employees want to see from leaders to show they care is to make sure we take a more comprehensive approach. And when there are issues that occur, injuries, property damage, issues, incidents that pop up, we need to make sure that we aren't blaming people for system problems. For example, the identification of at-risk behavior should be the beginning of the analysis, not the end. Consider how employees might currently be inappropriately rewarded for risky behavior or inappropriately punished for safe behavior. Consider all the factors like training and production pressure and excessive overtime and formal and informal rules and procedures and tool equipment uh, and equipment and uh, uh, what employees have to work with to figure out why this uh, incident occurred and was it really an individual issue or was it a system issue where anybody in that chair in that position would have potentially had the uh, had the same problem or the same issue? That's great. Now, um, you've helped so many organizations and professionals achieve a better safety culture, and you've you've shared some great stories with us so far today. Uh, but could you? Tell us a couple more, just one or two of your favorite stories from the field, uh, perhaps some success stories that um, might be helpful to our listeners as they strive to build a better uh, safety culture. Uh, sure. Some stories I have are more interesting or uh, funny. <laughs> yeah. uh, others, though, I think might be more important in terms of sort of examples where I felt I might have actually done some good in preventing some injury. So they might not be as entertaining or as funny as some <laughs> of the stories I have, but uh, just an example of, of some of the, the, the things where I really felt useful. Um, for example, finding where employees were systematically working too close under a high wall at a mine where they could have been crushed by falling rock. Um, finding a severe hydrogen leak in a lab that was not taken seriously and uh, getting the higher-ups to, to really sort of listen to the employees there and, and taking a closer look at the hydrogen leak and finding out that it really could have uh, caused an explosion there where a lot of people were, uh, were working. Um, finding some haul truck drivers that were consistently working 18, 24-hour days with limited yeah. breaks and actually being criticized from their supervisor when they were asked to take a break and uh, the, the senior leaders not knowing this was going on at that level of the organization and sort of bringing light, light to that, um, sort of fatigue not being taken seriously. I, I find a lot of what I do sometimes 
is I'm listening to the employees, what their issues are, listening at all levels of the organization and sort of shining a light in, uh, in the areas or on the areas that really need some additional attention. Uh, there was a military base commander who wasn't allowing any criticisms or discussion of risky behavior to be reported above his level at the base, causing like a culture of fear and all kind of risky things were happening, but everybody was afraid to go over this person's head because they were told there would be severe punishment if anybody discussed anything outside of the, uh, of the base. So finding things like that really made me, me feel sort of useful. But one interesting story I want to, want to, um, to expand on a bit. Mm-hmm. And this happened where I was following up on a safety culture survey with some interviews. And one of the questions on the safety culture survey talked about being punished or employees punished for having a work injury. And uh, at this particular site, a petrochemical company of about 500 people, um, there was about, uh, gosh, an 80, 85% response rate of employees were saying, yes, we are punished for having a work-related injury. And um, that was the hourly employee level. Um, we stratify the results, and we also have the results from the, the site leadership. And site leadership, 0% of the site leaders said that employees were punished for having a work injury. And so we followed this up with some interviews. And um, during the leadership meeting first, um, one person threw out an idea thinking maybe this is what they're, they're, they're referring to. Somebody else would say, no, I don't think that's it. Somebody else would bring up something. No, that probably isn't it. At the end of the meeting with the leadership, the conclusion was, I have no idea why they think they're being punished. It's just it makes no sense to me. Then I had a meeting with some hourly employees. The first meeting I had, um, one of the employees stood up and said, I'll tell you what's going on. I'll tell you exactly how we're being punished. He said, I was just injured about a month ago. You know what they made me do? They made me stand up in front of all my coworkers, all of my friends, everybody make a damn fool out of myself by telling everybody what a stupid thing I did, how I got hurt, how it was all my fault. And this, and, um, um, really feeling very punished, whereas leadership saw that situation as that's not punishment, that's continuous improvement and learning from our mistakes. But at the hourly employee level, they saw that sort of standing up and talking about what they did, how they got hurt as a pretty severe punishment. And so I think one of the successes there was that understanding, sort of developing more of an understanding that different groups of people can see the exact same situation. But unless we discuss it more thoroughly, we really get into what people are feeling, not just sort of what the events were, but how do people feel about those events, then um, sort of we will uh, uh, often not see the big picture. But if we get into it deeply, not only looking at what the situations are, but what people feel, think and feel about those situations, we're going to get a lot more useful information. Definitely. Yeah, that's that's a really great story. Uh, good advice uh, for, for folks who are looking to, you know, uh, bridge that gap within their safety culture. So, um, Steve, I have just one final question for you. Uh, the focus on safety culture and behavioral safety science, it's 
it's been around for a while now. Um, are there any new innovations, approaches, or other things to watch for on the horizon within this particular area of EHS? Okay, so talking about what's new with safety and what might be upcoming, that kind of thing. So hopefully this is not going to be a trend. But with the new COVID-related issues, working from home, working in smaller pods, lack of teamwork, lack of interaction, isolation, we know this is causing uh, certain issues. Um, I've mentioned our safety culture survey several times. Um, One of the new additions to the survey, one of the options we have, are a variety of COVID-related questions. And uh, uh, let me just talk about one of these. And the reason I want to talk about one of these questions is because I just completed a safety culture survey with an organization, and they chose to add these COVID-related questions. And... Uh, there was one question that actually was the sort of the, the, the most undesirable response of all of the survey questions, the old questions, the new questions. Um, the most undesirable response by far was one of these new questions. And the new question was this. Uh, Pandemic-related restrictions and social isolation are negatively impacting my psychological or physical health. So about 60% of the population at this particular site I just uh, assessed said that, yes, pandemic-related restrictions and social isolation are negatively impacting my psychological and physical health. And so, again, I'm hoping that this is not going to be a long-term trend and we're going to soon be getting back to teamwork and interacting and and solving problems face-to-face. But uh, to the extent that we don't, I see this as uh, sort of a bigger and bigger issue. So in addition uh, to that, uh, I would say, especially in terms of behavior-based safety, sort of looking at, at observations, not only in terms of certain critical behaviors like PPE and body position and equipment use and that kind of thing, um, but taking a broader view. Uh, for example, the, I, I, I've got uh, a video I show in some training sometimes of a uh, uh, a rail car that is being brought into a mine and it is stacked with block eight high. And uh, the video shows a couple workers taking this load of block that somebody had already handled once to turn it into an eight high stack. And they're double handling these materials, turning it into two four high stacks so it could fit into the mine opening. And there were lots of at-risk behaviors happening in this video, um, sort of showing um, the problems with turning the, you know, at least the the problem that these two workers were having, turning this eight high stack into two four high stacks. Lots of at-risk behaviors with regard to ergonomics and mobile equipment use and, and that kind of thing. And when I say what sort of is new or should be new is sort of taking a step back and Uh, really more of a systems approach and asking certain questions. So instead of just looking at body position and are you twisting and and that kind of thing, we are expanding the definition and uh, of what we're looking for. 
And so really asking ourselves, what is it exactly we're doing? Why are we doing it this way? And can we change anything in the system in order to improve? So for example, with this uh, situation where they're turning the eight high stacks into two four, sort of taking a step back, and yes, we still want to be observing for things like twisting and body position and height of forks and that kind of thing. But in addition to those types of behaviors, asking that question, what exactly is it we're doing? Why are we doing it this way? And is there something we can change in the system to improve? And so with this particular example, yes, what are we doing? We're taking uh, the eight high stack and we're double handling it, turning it into two four so it can get into the mine. And so we ask ourselves, why are we doing it? Why are we getting our block delivered to us eight high if only four will fit into the mine? And the answer is we're not ordering block eight high, we're just ordering a load of block and this is the way it comes. And so asking what can we do to improve? Well, how about we start asking uh, whether it's an internal supplier or an external supplier, um, can we start getting our block delivered to us at four high instead of eight? Now, it might be a little bit more expensive because pallets and, and a little bit of extra handling up front, but it would completely eliminate the need to double handle these materials and completely eliminate all the at-risk behaviors that we had just seen in, uh, again, um, it, it, it would completely eliminate the behaviors, the at-risk behaviors we just saw in turning this eight high stack into two four highs. And so really expanding what we're looking for beyond just behaviors to making sure we're also considering those system factors that we uh, could use to improve the situation. Uh, in addition, expanding things like the definition of employee involvement. And so we, we've got this one exercise we do with uh, with, uh, with, with leaders where we're looking at how to get employees more involved in safety. And so that's sort of the traditional way of looking at it. How can we get employees more involved in safety? For example, instead of just sitting in a meeting room, uh, listening to uh, a presentation, getting employees involved in coming up with ideas or helping maybe present the presentation. But that's sort of the standard way of looking at it. In addition to that, in terms of employee involvement, also looking at, well, how can we get leaders more involved with employees? One of the one of the, the criticisms that employees have is that leaders don't understand what I'm going through. They don't understand my job. They don't understand how hard this is and why we do it this way. And so getting leaders more involved with employees is an expanded definition of employee involvement as well. And even a third way, and that is leaders are often sort of in charge of their own little or big silos, and they're held accountable, held responsible for their particular silo. But uh, really, employee involvement can also be expanded to leaders getting involved with each other. And how do we bring other leaders up? How do we get involved with leaders so that each leader is not just responsible for bringing their own department division section up, but we're trying to raise the whole organization 
up. I was um, working with an organization where um, there was a vice president in charge of a certain division and his injury rate was just skyrocketing. And it was like he had the plague. Other leaders were afraid to interact with him, afraid to go to meetings <laughs> with him. They're sort of like, we're afraid it would rub off and and uh, and, and the, his poor injury rate would reflect on, on them as well, where we really should have been bringing that leader in and looking at best practices and and how can we really bring the whole organization up so if i'm in charge of one division and i'm doing great but i've got a, a peer who's not doing so great um really from an organizational standpoint we're not doing well until we bring all of the divisions up to the level where we are are looking to get well, that's excellent. Sounds good. A lot of a lot of new things down the road too to consider as uh, in the continual improvement of workplace safety. Well, we appreciate you joining us for the EHS Daily Advisors Safety Stand Down Week, Steve. And thanks so much for taking the time to be with us today on EHS on Tap. Great, thank you. Great to be here. Now, we'd also like to thank our audience for tuning in today, and remember to keep an eye out for new episodes of EHS on Tap and keep reading the EHS Daily Advisor. To stay on top of your safety and environmental compliance obligations, get the latest in best practices, and keep your finger on the pulse of all things related to the EHS industry. Until next time, this is Justin Scase for EHS on Tap. <laughs>